Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Edward Pickering, and this is Ruler Conversations. It's new magazine week. Ruler 119, the sole edition, is now thudding onto doormats across the UK and around the world. When we put together our recent mind and body editions, Ruler 116 and 117, we knew we had to complete the trinity with a soul magazine. Because for me, more than any other sport, cycling is about soul. I'm joined by Ruler's resident photojournalist, James Start, to look at a few of the features in the magazine. Uh, we're going to catch up also with the cycling journalist Maria David, who contributed a piece about the Ethiopian cyclist Salam Amhergarafiel, and there will also be a special guest appearance by AI Ed. So, James, start. You play guitar in a Parisian funk collective, which means you definitely have soul. What is it about cycling that you think has soul? This is such a great issue. It's a mix of the sports history, its relationship to the crowds, and the personalities, I think, that it inspires and generates. It's such a rich sport. You also have to take into consideration just how physically hard it is and the sacrifice and, and just how hard you have to dig into your own body and this sort of relationship to the body and soul to push yourself, to take yourself to new levels. And I think all those things combine why it's one of the most beautiful sports, in our opinion, obviously, the most beautiful sport. And it does have soul. There's just no way around it. It's also got soul as an activity, hasn't it? I think it's a transformative and transcendent activity. You can look at it as a physical act. And when you cycle, you get from point A to point B. But bike riding is also about feeling. And when I ride, I get physical benefits. I get fitter and stronger, hopefully. But I also get emotional benefits. I kind of feel flow and fulfilment when I'm on the bike. And it's interesting because in, in the magazine, in a couple of different places, we've asked what actually a soul is. Uh, both Ned Bolting and Orla Shenoui, who both write brilliant columns in the magazine, both have asked this question. And it's also a question that's preoccupied the most eminent philosophers and scientists in the last 4,000 years and more. And what the conclusion is of all that is that we don't really know what a soul is. But at the same time, we know exactly what it is. And all I know is that cycling makes me happy, and that's what gives it soul. It connects you with who you are. I always feel more connected, both physically and emotionally, when I'm riding my bike, or when I'm in a phase in my life where I'm able to ride regularly. And that's not always the case, because as a cycle photographer, I spend much more of my time on the road photographing other people actually partaking in the activity and I connect in, in certain ways but from a physical perspective it you know it's it, it wreaks havoc on me and I get kind of disconnected to myself and I it's so crucial for me when I come back to Paris to be able to get back on my bike in one way shape or form and it's been a really hard spring as it is for a lot of people I think in England as well and it's just been so hard to get out and ride regularly and it's just eating away at my soul, because <laughs> I know I've got a window here between the classics and the tour where I can find some time to ride. And the weather has to give me some, some opportunity to do that as well. And I'm just, I'm hoping it, it happens because it's, it's such an important part of my life that in the down moments where I'm not traveling, that I can be on my bike. 
I'm biased, obviously, but I would also argue that Ruler, the magazine, the physical magazine, has soul. And James, we're going to leaf through the Soul magazine and have a chat about some of the features. We're going to also hear from a few of our contributors and interview subjects dotted through the podcast. And we'd love it if our listeners' interest is piqued by any of these pieces to subscribe. And listeners to Ruler Conversations can get 15% off our regular subscription price by going to ruler.cc, hitting the subscribe button and entering the code PODCAST15. That's ruler.cc. And the code is podcast15, podcast15. Our first feature, James, is it's by you. You both shot and wrote this feature and it's very topical. I think we've got our timing really, really good with this one. The headline on it, which I, I'm smug enough to say that I came up with, is, is The Age of Remco, which works on at least two levels. And it's an interview with Remco Evnipol. So tell us about Evnipol. Yeah, well, uh, it was actually, we did this actually in the tour of San Juan in Argentina. You know, these big riders, if you want to get any significant time with them, you got to plan in advance and, and kind of go into the early races with an eye down the road. But we already knew that he was world champion and we knew he was going to be um, eyeing up the uh, Giro d'Italia. So you and I discussed it and said, well, he's the guy we want on the, uh, the, the Giro d'Italia issue, which happens to also be the sole issue, obviously. And as few races have more soul than the Giro, right? So it all came together wonderfully. I love this picture, the opening pictures of him against his gray steel wall inside the racetrack. There's a racetrack on like stage three and the, the boxes where the cars are all against these steel backgrounds. And it's just so cool. And I said, this is like almost a, a homemade photo studio. And so I knew we were going to be there, and I talked to Phil Lowe, the press officer. So when we were there, please give me 30 seconds, really, with Remco in that box. And he did. And I came away with this picture, and when I took it, I said, that's going to be the opening picture. I just love that picture. Um, it, it's it's a very you know cool metallic background. Remco is cool, and uh, he's just got this aura around him, and I think that comes out here. So I was very happy about that. And then I remember, I was so proud of it, the picture I sent it to you, and, and then your only response was, and the words. And I was like, oh yeah, I haven't got the whole package yet. So we sat down with him and had a great interview. I said very clearly, I don't want to be talking about the tour of San Juan. I don't want to talk really talk about your upcoming season. I want to be, you know, looking ahead to the to the Giro and also trying to get a little bit below the surface and find out a little bit who you are because this whole generation of champions, they're so good, but they're so young. What makes them tick? Where do they come from? What's the just little questions so I mixed it up with some race stuff and then just some offbeat questions you know like what's your worst characteristic and what's your strongest characteristic riders like those questions it's not just the classic uh, cycling you know interview how do you feel today kind of thing right so by mixing it up we really had a, a nice variety of questions that show you a little bit who I think Remco is and also looks forward to the season and to this year's Giro which is just around the corner he was quite open as well. He's quite honest about himself. He says that he can be, I think, naturally a little bit impulsive and say things in the heat of the moment. And that comes across as abrasive. And rather than blame those around him, he was honest enough to say that he's needed to work on that and you know, learn to control it better and work out how to get his point across. Well, that's one of the things that impresses me about Remco is that he is brutally honest with himself and he's not afraid to say, I screwed up. And he did that actually in uh, San Juan, the big mountain stage, the Alto de Colorado. He went off in this attack when the Medellin Colombian team still had like five guys together, right? And what do they do? They just let him sit out there to die. And we're going up almost 3,000 meters. And he realized he'd gone too early. He was above his fitness level and above the altitude level he needed to be at. And he was going to maintain it. And he died a million deaths. And what did he do at the finish line? He said, I was stupid. That was a stupid mistake. I thought that was so refreshing. And I said that to him, he's like, hey, better to make those mistakes now, acknowledge it and learn from it than to make them in the Giro d'Italia. And a lot of champions, everything comes so easily to them. They're physically so gifted that they don't have to ask those questions that you or I, the mere mortals have to ask all the time when we're just trying to get to the next step of our own performance. And suddenly when things go wrong for them, they're not equipped to ask those questions and answer them and find the solutions. And Remco really impresses me because he is. He is inherently gifted and talented, and yet he's honest with himself. And I think that's gonna serve him really well going down the road in his career. 
I imagine you think he's got a pretty good chance of winning the Giro d'Italia. Well, you know, there's this this uh, Slovenian guy by the name of Primoz uh, Roglic, I believe. It's still there, and he's got some unfinished business there as well. So I think there's going to be competition, but he has a good chance. It's going to be a different race in the Vuelta. You know, the Vuelta he won, but the, the climbs in the Vuelta are very different than the climbs in the Giro. The climbs in the Giro are as steep as the Vuelta and often longer. And we'll see how he handles that. He's going to... Also, he came into that Welta, he was so skinny. But that was at the end of the season, at the end of the summer in September. He's got to get to that weight in the Giro. There's some things out there that are not givens for him. But the storybook is he comes in with the World Championship jersey and then has to trade it in for the pink jersey, which would be pretty gorgeous. And I'll tell you what, if he's got a chance to get the pink, he's not going to be thinking twice. Oh, it's too early or anything like that. He's made that mistake in the past. He said, if I can have... I want to win the race, but even if I have one day in pink, I'm going for it. I'm not going to wait around. No, it's a really interesting feature. Really, I really felt like I know Evelyn Pohl a bit better now. The next feature in the mag is an interview of Victoria Pendleton, the former Olympic track sprint champion. And the interview is by Rachel Jerry. And I really enjoyed this piece for, for many reasons. First of all, the, the photographs we got from our friend Chris Old. Brilliant photographs of Victoria Pendleton out riding. And also the interview was brilliant. Rachel, I think, grew up as a cyclist with a lot of admiration for Victoria Pendleton. She came up as that generation who got into cycling around the time when Pendleton was winning a lot and we had that success on the track. And that really comes across. It's not just a perfunctory interview by a journalist of a cyclist. It is, it's got a personal touch which kind of runs through the feature and you can tell Rachel's interest and enthusiasm for this subject really comes through. And Pendleton comes across really interesting as well because, you know, she's she's been retired a fair while and she hasn't slowed down. She has put all the energy and motivation that she put into her track cycling career into trying lots of other things and, and living life. And she came across as somebody who's really grounded, who didn't find it easy to transition out of the world of cycling, also had challenges when she was in the world of cycling, but seems to have made peace with it now. And that came across really well. I mean, she's tried horse racing, she's done some biking, but now she's working again with young cyclists and trying to teach them all the things that she's learned over the course of her life that can benefit a new generation of cyclists. I've got a whole impression of her life coming full circle, but also developing and finding out what she's learned through her cycling career, but also after it. You mentioned a lot of us uh, that are in cycling journalism have race bikes. The thing with Rachel is that she was racing bikes at a very high level very recently. So she's still, it's really fresh and she can still get inside this sort of cyclist mindset in a very unique way. And that, that comes out often in her writing. I think it's uh, really strong. And then, as you mentioned, you know, the thing with Pendleton is it's also reinventing herself after cycling and finding new reasons to ride and, and work in the sport. And that does not come easily. Some people don't manage to do that, but she's found her way here. And um, it's a really uh, inspiring story. And I, I, I agree. Chris is a friend of mine and his photos are so perfect for this feature. It's a really brilliant a marriage of words and, and images. That reinvention is really interesting. The metaphor that Pendleton herself uses, and which Rachel picked up on, was that Victoria Pendleton's taken a great interest in the concept, like the snake. She's got some snake tattoos, and she's talked about the snake, like snakes shed their skin, and, and it's kind of casting off that old skin, but still being the same snake, obviously, but moving on, and constant that constant reinvention metaphor really came through there. And I got a, an interesting pitch when we were putting this magazine together from a Canadian writer called Guy Dixon. And he contacted me out of the blue and talked about his interpretation and understanding and ownership of his cycling fandom and how it is intimately linked to the era in which he became interested in cycling. And I thought that's a fascinating subject for the soul magazine. We've called it Romancing the Old. That was Guy's title for the feature. And it's just about, it is about Guy learning to be a cycling fan and cyclist in the context of the late 80s, which was quite an interesting time in North American cycling. You probably remember this era very well yourself. There was the Alex Steeder, Canadian cyclist who wore the yellow jersey. The 7-Eleven team 
was coming up around that point. And Guy's cycling fandom, even though it's lasted 40 years, is rooted in that in nostalgia for that period. I identified with that because I share that same time frame with, with Guy. I, I also discovered cycling in the mid-80s. But the feature is not just about the late 80s. It's about how, as cycling fans, we do identify with the period in which we got into cycling, whether that's the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, or, or last year. We glom on, don't we, as cycling fans, to the period and we absorb all this information because it's all so new. It imprints itself on our memory. And no matter how long our journey is in cycling, that original rush of intense feeling and emotion and soul always stays with us. I remember the first bike races that I watched on television. I remember the day I watched Alex Theta, I think it was NBC Sports, then the 30, 27 minutes that they allotted to the Tour de France uh, at the time, how he got that yellow jersey. And Greg LeMond's 86 tour, I mean, th those are just in my memory, much more than many of the 30 tours that I've actually covered live in person. It's a very different relationship that I have with the Tour de France today, in some ways more impressionistic, but I was sitting there in front of the TV, I was watching every move, I was listening to Phil Liggett, and I can still remember that like it was yesterday. And, and that's what this, this story is talking about, and it's really interesting. The next feature is an interview with an Ethiopian cyclist called Salam Amher Gerafiel by Maria David. And I caught up earlier with Maria to ask her what she was hoping to achieve with this feature. And she told me about her exploration of Ethiopian cycling. And so we're going to hear from Maria now. Maria David is a cycling journalist based in London, who's been a regular contributor to Rouleur over the years. Her blog is Two Wheel Chick. You can search that online. And that is a figure two, followed by wheel, as in a bicycle wheel, and chick. You can follow her on Twitter, at Two Wheel Chick, and Instagram with the same handle. For Rouleur 119, Maria wrote us a story based around the experiences and ambitions of an Ethiopian cyclist, Salam Amhagerefiel, but which broadened out into a much wider story about Ethiopian cycling as a whole. So, Maria, thanks for coming on the Ruler podcast. Tell us more about Salam Amha. Salam Amha is part of a new generation of cyclists from Ethiopia. A lot of them come from the northern section of the country known as Tigray. Um, it's up where it borders with Eritrea. And she's a 26-year-old semi-professional athlete. Currently, she's actually at the UCI World Cycling Centre at Aigle in Switzerland, um, now, in a way, I mean, she's been there for a few years now, probably about three years. But the thing is, is that unfortunately for her, she arrived right when there was a war going on in, in Tigray. Uh, so she's actually been there for longer than other athletes would normally be there. They, they normally do a stint of about uh, 10 months or so. But she actually had to stay there uh, more from a sort of solidarity point of view because it was just too unsafe for her to, to go back home. And in fact, her route to get to Aigley in the first place was a bit torturous anyway, because she was identified as a, as a potentially um, good cyclist, I think when she was about 15. But the thing is, she didn't actually uh, feel that she could try it because she was, she was more into football back then. And uh, there were issues, I think, with the different federations because the, uh, the football federation was saying that really she should uh, focus on that. And so she couldn't really do much bike riding. It wasn't really something that uh, lots of Ethiopian women do anyway. Um, normally, once they get to the age of majority, they're focused more on, say, uh, just making a family life, staying at home. And, uh, and in fact, she had those issues, too, because people tried to uh, persuade her mother to let her go and take part in the training camps. She went on one training camp uh, in Rwanda. That's the one that's run by Kimberly Coates. You might know her. She runs a, a setup called Africa Rising. So she was there training and Kimberly was quite impressed with her and thought she had potential. Uh, and then, like other Africans, she went to the UCI Centre in South Africa, where she trained further. And then that was when, I think it was around 2020, that she was identified as someone who could then go up to Aigle and do the course there with a view to maybe going into a, a continental team. But unfortunately, um, she had to put everything on hold because of the fighting in Tigray. Uh, it was very difficult for her. And for some, somehow she did actually manage to go, though, to the Olympics. <laughs> she represented Ethiopia 
in the Tokyo Olympics. She got through that and she didn't complete it, but, you know, she did make herself uh, known just by going off the front uh, for a short while. So she was seen by the world. But then I think after that, you know, with things being so unsafe at home, then she had to stay in Switzerland. I think it was quite a culture shock for her as well, because although a lot of um, these African athletes, these, these Ethiopian athletes are very good climbers because uh, the area in Tigray is quite mountainous. One of the problems is that they then arrive in Switzerland and they still do hills there, but then they've got to cope with the climate. And I think it's also for a lot of them the first time that they're even seeing snow-capped peaks, something that you don't really get in Ethiopia. So she had to deal with that. She had to deal with the just being away from home for so long, the food and, and even just things like the language. Um, at that time, she didn't really speak much English or French or any other language, really. So it was quite difficult for her. And she was helped a lot by the UCI. And at the World Cycling Centre, they do have a, a real programme to help riders from what they call tier three countries. So that's to say uh, athletes from places like Africa, Asia, and um, parts of South America as well. So they do have uh, different schemes in place just to, to bring everyone on board and to make them feel at home. And she did make friends. And in fact, um, Jack Landry, the uh, head of uh, the UCI World Cycling Centre said he has seen quite a, a metamorphosis in her attitude. She speaks English a lot better than before and she engages with people more as well. And in fact, um, our photographer, Celine Michel, also noticed that when uh, they took photographs of her earlier on this year. I think it was actually a very cold day. I think it was uh, December or January when the photos were taken. And, uh, and even though it was freezing cold, she was still quite enthusiastic. Sounds like it's been a positive experience for her. I and mean, you mentioned that she, she started out as a football player. And also, Ethiopia is better known for distance runners, isn't it, rather than cycling? So mm. neighbouring Eritrea has more of a cycling culture, doesn't it? But specifically, you found out that Tigray has a burgeoning cycling fandom, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it does. The runners tend to be from other parts of, of Ethiopia, but somehow Tigray, I think maybe with the topology of the country as well, there, there just seems to be more of a cycling culture and perhaps also with the proximity to, to Eritrea. But I think they, they do have a scheme. Well, I'm not so much sure about now, given the war. From what I hear now, everything has been practically decimated. But before that, there was a scheme where um, the Ethiopian government would provide funding for people to take part in in races and local races. And in fact, uh, a lot of the uh, the kids around there, they did aspire to become a cyclist and they weren't necessarily thinking about, you know, world tour or anything like that. They just wanted to be famous, you know, within their own village or their small town, you know, within Tigray. And in fact, one big rider there, one big name there was uh, Skabu Guramai, who uh, currently races for the uh, Jeku Alula team. He actually had his, his father and his brother become big stars at the time. So, so they did actually have role models. And I think that has actually led to more and more people wanting to get into cycling, although it was at a very modest level. And you've talked about Skabu Gourmet extensively in the feature as well. And he came through the World Cycling Centre and he's having a, yeah. a, a good world tour career, isn't he? He's a, he's a respected rider and seems to be you know, settled into a solid pro career. The constant for him has been Brent, Brent Copeland, really, because, uh, I mean, he was the guy that identified him and uh, got him into MTN Quebecer. And then from there, he's moved on to, to other teams where Brent Copeland was present. Uh, and in fact, now he's uh, racing in Jaco Alula, you know, where Brent is the, uh, the manager of the team. He's a more mature rider now. I think he's into, into his 30s now. He's been the, um, the role model. And I think he was the first rider from Ethiopia to race for a World Tour team. Um, so he's actually mentoring another rider on that team, Wele Hargos. And in fact, Wele Hargos has had a few problems now. He's a, a young rider, but he has had a few issues, you know, around the fact that because he's only just come over, come across and uh, and there are problems in Tigray, he's now living uh, and has got refugee status in uh, Switzerland. So he's he's having, you know, a more difficult time, I think, unlike, say, Skabu, who managed to bring his family over. I think they went to Addis Ababa and then they, they came over and, and he settled in Spain. Wele Hargos uh, has not been able to go back to his family and the terms of, of his being in Europe is actually through having refugee status. 
So he's got those kind of battles to deal with, as well as, you know, the battle on the road, you know, against other riders. Yeah. And, you know, being a professional athlete is complicated and tough enough, isn't it, without having to deal with issues as serious as that as well, which must create a lot of pressure. Yeah. And talking of that, actually, I mean, obviously, we talked about Salim Anha, but there's another a woman Ethiopian rider called Eirutes a- a- from Gebru, who, who's actually, she's probably, um, I mean, arguably the number one female Ethiopian rider at the moment. I mean, she's doing pretty well and she's actually racing for a continental team in, in France. But she actually had quite an extraordinary story in which she'd raced for Ethiopia. She'd been racing for a few years and then she was actually on her way to compete in the World Championships in Ghent. And, and that was it. She just disappeared off the radar. Nobody could find her. And it turned out that she'd basically fled. And she didn't want to race for Ethiopia. And uh, with all the problems that were going on in Tigray, she basically went to uh, claim asylum. And people who had been trying to make contact with her, including Kimberly Coates and uh, the people from the French team that she was about to join, they couldn't find her. But now she's she's back in the fold and, and she's racing for a team, I think it's called Team Grand Est um, in France, a continental team, and she's actually doing okay. Normally, um, people would say that once a rider gets to that point where they're seeking asylum, they've got so many other worries that, you know, they're not thinking about racing and they get lost from the system. So people are very pleased that she's actually back racing and could be going on to, to great things. I think she could be a name to watch for in the future. And there was one more interesting thing which came up in the kind of in the editing process. And I remember I got, I got back in touch with you because you had referred to Salam Amaha Gerafiel as Salam throughout the feature. And being a stuck in the mud traditionalist magazine editor, I thought, well, we should maybe be more objective and impartial and use her surname should we not refer to as Amha but you explain that it's more complicated than that isn't it there's a different naming system in Ethiopia which if you could explain that to us now that would be really educational I think yeah because obviously you know we get used to our names you know Maria David you know so you know my Christian name and then my last name is just the last name of the other people in my family but but over there basically what is supposedly your surname is actually the first name of your father or your grandfather. So Salam, you know, her name, I mean, I think Gerafil is actually the name of her grandfather. So it's a patronymic system. And so you rightly said that if we refer to her as Amhathra, it's like basically calling her by her father's first name, which yeah. which would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? So we, we kind of settled on Salam Amha. And we've got a little note to explain that at the end. But I thought it was a fascinating thing. I mean, it's a, a totally different system. And I felt even that small... Of nugget of information and system kind of broadened my horizons a bit and educated me about that. But Maria, it's a fascinating piece. It's about Salam Amha, but it's also about Ethiopian cycling as a whole and therefore African cycling. It's a really interesting piece. It's in the current edition of magazine with the headline Tigray and Dream. Thank you so much for pitching it and writing for us and we hope to hear from you again soon. The next feature is an interesting one, James. It's called The Soul of Bike Race. And I feel you would have a lot of opinion on this because it's something you often refer to yourself. But it's a feature I wrote and it's something I want to convey about bike racing and why it is more than sport to me. So I tried to reflect on what it is about bike racing that has soul. And it, it harks back to what you said when we, in the introduction to this podcast, where you talked about the fans and the public and the atmosphere. And it's what we've talked about in previous podcasts as well, talking about Flesh Alone on being on the Mur de Huy last week. So I don't think I can put my finger on exactly why I think bike races have soul. But again, it's something that I know they do. They do. And this was a great feature to give us a chance to collaborate on. I just started going digging into my archives to come up with um, different pictures I thought reflected it. And yeah, most of the time I just kept coming back to pictures of the fans and all different kinds of fans packed along the hillsides and standing alone in the rain, families all together. There's just something that touches my heart when I I see all those kilometers people walk up the mountains just to get a glimpse of their cyclists passing through for a split second, only to walk back down. You cannot ignore ever the role of the fans in this sport. It's funny, I've I've been asking race organisers quite a bit over the last few years about the soul of their races. I think it's an important thing. But I did once ask 
Christian Prudhomme, obviously the race director of the Tour de France, but it was when I went to Paris Tour, I think 2017, it was when I went to see that race. And it was before it went gravel. Um, it's when it was still that long autumnal race, at, you know, tail end of the season. And I asked him, you know, where is the soul of Paris Tour? He just basically waved his arms in the direction of the French countryside and told me that it's out there in the, in the fields and the big skies and in the chilly autumnal air of La France Profonde in September or October. And that, that's the soul of that race. You could hold that race in summer and it wouldn't at all be the same. It's got that melancholic end of season feeling. Um, of course, they've changed it all now, put gravel sections into it. But I mean, I'm sure that, and that is, that is contributing to it having soul. But for me, yeah, the soul of Paris Tour is more than anything else, that late season melancholic feeling that it's all coming to an end. Yeah, and then the melancholy of the fact that this great race has just kind of been downsized every decade by the racing calendar and politics and all these things, because it's it's a beautiful race. Honestly, I don't know how many years I've done it, and I don't know how many years I stood on the bridge of Amboise to get the picture of the Peloton crossing over the Loire River Valley with the chateau where Leonardo da Vinci uh, lived on the hillside is magical. And the Loire River Valley also, the crossing of the Loire is also something that gives that race soul. It sort of centers it in the flow of time uh, as, as they race across. And it's a lovely race, but like so many. And the race organizers, that, that's not an easy question to ask to a race organizer. Um, that's a really good answer that Christian uh, came up with. Not all race organizers are so well prepared to answer this question. However, I did approach the organizer of the Amgen Tour of California when I was out there for the race. And it took me all week to get an interview with her. I finally got her on top of Mount Baldy, which is the penultimate stage that year um, in the mountains above Los Angeles. It was a really, it's a lovely climb, beautiful situation. I approached her and started talking to her and I said, so what or where is the soul of the Tour of California? And uh, she said, the what? And I don't think she was understanding the race in the same way that I was. But at the same time, I asked Jens Voigt the same question, who, you know, a rider who's often raced the Tour of California and had a great affinity with it and was working as a commentator on it. And he explained that it was the eccentricity and enthusiasm of the fans. And he was right. The Tour of California has fans who make the guys from the Basque Country and Flanders and Brittany look quiet and reserved. I thought it was a really extrovert fandom in the Tour of California. But I thought it was a fascinating thing. I think that we as cycling fans understand that there's more to bike racing than bike racing. Uh, the next feature in the magazine is one, a set of interviews by Jeremy Whittle called Cycling, Spirituality and Escape. Jeremy pitched this to be quite a while ago, but I knew it had to go into the soul edition. It's a bit different from the rest of the magazine. He's interviewed five individuals who have found in cycling an activity which helps their mental health and which they find spiritually fulfilling and nourishing. But it's not racing cyclists. He's interviewed Alistair Campbell, who used to be Tony Blair's spokesman and press secretary and director of communications. He's interviewed Freya North, who is a best-selling novelist and has actually written fantastic novel about the Tour de France called Cat. He interviewed OJ Borge, who's a Radio 2 DJ um, and keen cyclist. He interviewed Emma O'Reilly, who was Lance Armstrong's soigneur back, back in the day. And also Nick Evans, who he's the founder and owner of Evo Fitness in West London. And really broad spread of characters really broad spread of individuals, a beautiful set of portraits taken by Véronique Roland, and five really different interviews about people who have completely different relationships with cycling, yet the common denominator is cycling. Absolutely. Really lovely portraits by Véronique, putting people in the environment, and very uh, just very moving portraits. The wonderful thing about cycling, it always makes whatever place you're in better. And if you're having a great day, you're even going to have a greater day. But you know for sure if, when you need to reflect or you need to just change things up a bit and uh, whatever it is, cycling will help you get to a better place. These uh, features address that. Yeah, it was a really contrasting and interesting and very honest and open 
set of interviews as well. The next feature is yours, James, and another fascinating piece which I learned a great deal from and felt it was a privilege to have in the magazine. The headline is A Face Full of Expression, but maybe you're the best person to introduce what this feature is, who it's about, and what it's about. Yeah, I had so much fun with this. Thank you, Ed, because you got it immediately. Often been a fan of cinema when I was in university. I went, and right after university, I was just a total cinephile, studied cinema, and always remembered this one movie called The Bicycle Thief, or Bicycle Thief. It actually had two names, depending on the way it was translated. It's just a masterpiece of Italian neorealism, uh, where all the actors were were not professional actors, but were actually factory workers, or in the in the case of this feature, uh, a child that was just found on the street, essentially. And even today, it's considered, it's studied in all the film classes as just one of the masterpieces in, in the evolution of cinema history. And a friend of mine teaches uh, cinema, actually, and he got a job down in Rome. And when he was back in Paris, we had lunch and he said, uh, oh yeah, Rome's good, I'm in this cool neighborhood, and believe it or not, I'm actually living in the same apartment building as Enzo Staula. And uh, I was like, uh, he's like, Enzo, he's like, yeah, you know, the kid child actor in The Bicycle Thief. I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, whoa, I said, that is a feature we are going to do in Rouleur. I mean, it was just like, I said, the first thing that came out of my mouth, I said, are you kidding? I am coming down to Rome to do that feature. And then it was just a question of time. And then, you know, as we're charting out our magazines and I saw the Soul Issue, Italy, Enzo. So it was, and it wasn't easy because he's not eight years old anymore. He's 80 some years old and not moving around too well. And he has good days and bad days. And and they were actually worried that I would get down there and he'd be having a bad day and I would come down for nothing. But it's like, I got to get down there. So it was after Milan San Remo, which was, you know, not the easiest thing. I was on a moto for 300K that day, right? And the only way to get there the next day to have coffee with him was the night train out of San Remo. And I got in at like 5.30 in Rome. And uh, my friend, uh, you know, answered the door and said pretty much, the couch is over there. <laughs> he shut the door and turned the light back off. And we both, both went to sleep for a couple more hours and then got up and went and uh, had coffee with Enzo and just sat down at a local bar where he has it. And he just told us all these stories about how he was discovered by De Sica on the streets of Rome and the making of this, this epic film, The Bicycle Thief, and why it was such a lasting, important movie. I mean, the bicycle is center stage in this movie. And what happens is you see what a role the bicycle played in life and society uh, in Italy after the war. And it was a means for success. It was a means for happiness. And then when it gets stolen, it's a means for despair and a tunnel into tragedy and loss. So he told me all about that and how it happened. And it was so poignant. And he's such a, uh, a beautiful person and, and, and visually so striking. His face tells, I don't know how many thousands of words and stories. He came from this working class neighborhood, was all of a sudden a star of the screen, went to the States, went to France, met all the great actors, uh, met Gino Bartali, uh, met John Wayne. And he tells me about all of that. And it was just um, one of the great days I've had as a cycling journalist, because cycling takes me to places and allows me to meet people like this, which we don't always get a chance to do. The portraits are so striking, but listeners can see the movie. If you search um, Bicycle Thieves on YouTube, it's there. And I'd I'd recommend watching it. I've watched it since reading the feature and really enjoyed it. And having read the feature as well, kind of got an understanding of the context. There's also kind of, you know, there is that sense of melancholy as well, that he was a child actor pulled from obscurity as an eight-year-old in the late 1940s, and we're talking to him in 2023. And you know, he's an old man who's seen all these things. What a life he's, he's lived. Yeah, a little melancholy too, because you know, he did a lot of movies on the heels of this. He did about 18 movies, even like played with Humphrey Bogart, right? Which is pretty great. But his career essentially ended in the early 60s uh, when he was no longer a child, no longer an adolescent. And then he went to work in Rome in the city hall. But he's still very much a man about town Everybody knows him. He's got a place at the cinema. I mean, he's still royalty. Yeah, his life started out humbly and um, is has been humble for many years since he stays in, in, on the silver screen. But what an amazing ride. The next feature, Built Different, is about Onguza, which is the bike company set up by former professional Dan Craven. 
Dan was famous for being a very good cyclist, but also for being photographed with a piglet at Trebroléon and for live tweeting from the middle of the 2016 Olympic road race when he got into the break. Since he's retired, he's set up a bike company in Namibia, uh, his home country, which is making great looking bikes. But there's also a story behind the whole setup, which I found fascinating. What Dan's done is he's trained up a couple of guys who have worked on his family's farm for years to make frames. They're making bikes. They're training up a couple more frame builders. And the aim is to make a successful bike company, which maybe could inspire other people in Namibia to set up bike companies, but also people in Namibia to set up any company they want to. Dan feels that it's very important that he leads by example there. So I had a couple of very long phone calls with Dan, and we're going to play some of the audio that I got from our interviews. I've always felt that if I was an Italian cyclist or if I'd been a British cyclist, I wouldn't have clung on to my career for as long as I did. You know, I was, I was good. I was never amazing. I'm under no illusions there. But it always felt that you can't be it if you can't see it. And Namibia has so few role models. So there was one Namibian cyclist before for me, who was a professional mountain biker. And he actually won the Cape Epic, went to the Olympics three times. If he didn't exist, I wouldn't have believed I could have done it. And so there was this, this deep down feeling of like, from where I come from, I'm doing something that's really different and needs to be seen that people from Namibia and people from Omoruru can do this. It wasn't anyone telling me that. It was just my personal feeling. And that's part of the reason why I kept going for so long. And when I retired, it was kind of like, well, I have this name and I have this reputation. Why do I have it? Who needs it? What is needed? And on my last professional team I was with, when I was told I wasn't getting a contract anymore, because basically my performance was not worthy of a contract at that point. The team manager sat me down and he was like, Dan, what role do you want in the team? And I could have very easily taken up any role on a pro team. And and I mean, that would have also been amazing, but it just didn't feel like the thing that was right for me to do. Whereas that would have basically been leaving my hometown and... I just always felt that coming here and doing Onguza, starting Onguza would be like actually making a difference to where I come from. Yes, I am a white man in Namibia. That makes me privileged by many standards. And I escaped to Europe and I married an American and I was living in Europe. And who benefits? I went to the Olympics, I was a professional athlete, and I was living in Europe. How does Namibia benefit? What can I do? I can come home and I can start a company. And this company, by design, can be aimed at trying to change the world we live in. And when I say the world we live in, I mean the Namibian context. I am taking people who have not had the historical privilege I have, and I am equipping them with skills. And if they choose to use them, then they can change their circumstances. That was Dan Craven. The next feature is possibly my favorite one in the whole magazine. It's one that made me think hardest about the theme of the magazine and seemed to fit in better. And I got a pitch Last year, I think, it was quite a while ago from the writer and photographer who did this piece. And Ryan writes and we photographs. Ryan goes for long bike rides, takes photographs and writes about them. And he suggested a story about ride which he'd done not that long ago from his home in Lisbon to Morocco and riding in the Atlas Mountains and riding back again. And... I felt that this would be an interesting feature. It covers a, an area of cycling which is really fascinating to me, bike packing, And his photographs were great. You know, Morocco is very photogenic. And when he sent the words in, 
I, I immediately understood that we had something quite special here because what Ryan did with this feature is he didn't write it in chronological order. I mean, obviously, he wrote the sentences in order and the paragraphs in order, but he sent an impressionistic account of his travels in the Atlas Mountains and in Morocco back back. And that's the way we think about holidays or when we look back on holidays from years ago. We don't remember them in order, do we? We remember them in terms of the highlights. So Ryan told the story of his bikepacking trip in Morocco impressionistically. He started on day 14. He went through day three, day seven, day nine, day six, and he, he told the story in memory order and that imposed a narrative on the whole thing, which I felt really gave a different account of a bike packing trip. Normally we'd get a bike packing story back and it would start at the beginning, go through the middle and end at the end. But Ryan's story was absolutely unique and I loved holding it in the magazine. Before each issue, we go through every page of this magazine every picture that's been chosen, every feature to make sure that the best possible picture that we can come up with is in the right place in, to, to describe that reportage. And uh, we move these pictures around a lot, but there was a lot of good material, very original. The bike itself is very small in there, but it doesn't really matter, does it? And they're just the very stark black and white pictures that capture a certain a way that I would imagine Morocco to be. I visited. He had a lucky lucky accident with the pictures. He was going to document it in two ways, black and white and colour with uh, two different cameras. And I think he, Ryan dropped his camera. It locked onto the black and white setting. And initially he was frustrated. But then he realised that you know, his the travels in Morocco weren't easy. He was on his own. He was encountering a fair bit of poverty and countries aren't always photogenic. Sometimes you go through urban settings which are challenging and the desert can be an overwhelming place as well and he actually realized that that black and white sharp harsh aesthetic perfectly reflected the state of mind that he was experiencing which wasn't necessarily a positive one but it was a very very interesting one and I really felt that it was a bike packing account with a difference and I, I can't wait to see what Ryan comes up with next. Yeah, formerly very beautiful. Some of the shots of the towns that he went through almost called to mind Robert Frank. I mean, really well-handled use of black and white here and appropriate. So thank God for our lucky accidents sometimes, huh? To close out the podcast, we're getting in our special guest star, AI Ed, which is a, an AI bot that has been trained on my voice to read some extracts from my last feature in the magazine, The Slow Passing of Time. As you know, James, I'm a Japanophile. I spent three wonderful years living in Japan and I will never turn down an opportunity to write about Japan. And this piece is an explore feature just about riding in Japan. I've spoken to a French creative director who lives in Tokyo, Pascal Viu, about his experience of living and riding in Japan. So thank you, James. Thanks to our listeners. And here's AI Ed with the slow passing of time. In The Bells of Old Tokyo, an exploration of Japanese culture and history, Author Anna Sherman wrote, Tokyo is one vast timepiece. Its little alleys and great avenues, its forgotten canals and temples make up the face of a great watch. Its months and weeks are beat out in traffic bearing into the capital. The city's hours and minutes and seconds are meted out in buildings torn down and the ones that rise. Time passes frenetically in Tokyo. The claustrophobic neon aesthetic of Blade Runner is said to have been inspired by the Kabukicho district. And in Shinjuku, the bright white lights of the bars, guess and gaming arcades and shops are so bright that it's hard to tell if it is day or night. So the two blend into each other, in a hallucinatory urban imitation of the midnight sun. People queue side by side for an American coffee and an old-fashioned at Mr Donut, and they might be having a morning pick-me-up, or equally, a late-night snack. Salarymen follow an endless cycle of work-bar-commute-sleep. Tokyo is the kind of place that sucks people in, but then again, it is also the kind of place from which it is necessary to escape. Time is accelerated within the circle of the Yamanote subway line, therefore the counterbalance is found by heading out of the urban sprawl. Out here, beyond the rice paddies, up in the dense and humid forests of the mountains of the Japanese interior, 
time moves more slowly. It is measured not by the pacey lives of the Tokyoman, the people of the capital, but in the passing of the seasons, the appreciation of transience and imperfection, and the slow organic weathering of old wooden buildings. For Pascal Viot, an expat Parisian who lives and works in Tokyo as a creative director in the advertising industry and photographer, this escape into a quieter, more sparsely populated and meditative space is the essence of the Japanese experience. The Japanese would know this as wabi sabi, a philosophical concept which is not easily translated into English because it is as much a feeling as an empirical description of the physical world. Wabi sabi is an ephemeral appreciation of imperfection and impermanence. Wabi sabi is how you visualize time, Viut explains. For example, rust on metal or wood slowly getting tinted in a different way as the years pass. It's the patina of time. Sometimes you see a house that nobody has touched for 50 years, surrounded by trees and flowers, and there are plenty of these abandoned houses in the middle of nowhere. There is a house I pass on my rides with a couple, an old lady and an old man. They have a small terrace, and sometimes when I pass, they are just sitting there and eating their bento. They look in their 90s and wear old clothes from the last century. They just continue to do their work, and it's like nothing changes. Perhaps the two most emblematic images of Japan are those of the white noise and light of Tokyo and the snow capped pyramid of Mount Fuji, visible on clear days to the west of the capital. However, it's the bit in between that Viot likes to explore. There are a couple of truisms about Mount Fuji. First, there's a Japanese saying that you're mad not to climb it once, and you're mad to climb it twice. People go to the top because, like Everest, it is there. But it is a crowded place during climbing season, and the whole contradictory, confusing experience of Japan is encapsulated in the fact that Coca Cola have a vending machine at the summit, carried up by a bulldozer in July, and taken back down again in August. People often climb mountains to get away from civilization. Atop Fuji, you have to accept that hundreds of others are also doing so at exactly the same time as you. Second, paradoxically, the best place to appreciate Fujisan is anywhere except Fujisan. It looks fantastic from a distance, less so close up in a crowd. One of Viut's favorite rides is out to the Wada Pass in Yamanashi Prefecture. Yamanashi is the bit of Japan which sits between Tokyo and Mount Fuji. So, it is the perfect place to explore the space between the Japan we know and the Japan we do not. You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo Magazine or visit our website at rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. <laughs>